I'm joined by Tom Callis. Hello, Tom. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you here. And Tom is going to talk through the program about what the research was, what we're learning about genetic testing strategies. But before we begin, we are living through the COVID-19 pandemic, and I just want to check in around the country. So Tom, where are you coming to us from and what's going on in your community? Yeah, so I live in Western North Carolina in the mountains in a, in a town called Boone. It's a kind of a tourist area that has a national park, the Blue Ridge Parkway that runs through it. And yesterday was the first day that I left my house in, in two weeks and uh, went to the grocery store and, you know, they're, they're out of flour and out of toilet paper still. So it's, uh, and I think maybe that movie picked a bad day because our statewide official I want to say shelter in place. I think they're using an alternative phrasing for it, but basically the don't leave your house statewide order right. um, that happened yesterday. So I think I maybe picked a bad day to, to go to the grocery store. So hopefully that's not reflective, but otherwise uh, it seems to, people seem to be keeping their sanity in, at least in my area. I mean, I think everyone's, you know, we got two small kids here, so it's really sad that they can't see their friends. That's, that's a hard thing to explain to a, you know, a four-year-old. That'll be rough for a while, and hopefully we'll all find ways to get through this. So without further ado, I'm going to have you start with your presentation and pretend we're all standing in front of you at a poster at ACC. Okay. Well, fantastic. So this presentation is titled Cardiologist Beware, the Clinical Limitations of Genotyping versus Sequencing-Based Strategies for Cardiomyopathy Evaluation. And it could have alternatively have been titled Cardiologists and Consumers and Patients Beware, because this presentation was targeted towards cardiologists, but I think this is actually much very practical information for HCM patients as well to, to be aware of. So uh, next slide. There we go. Uh, so I should mention that I am an employee of a genetic testing laboratory called Invitae. And so th there, are, there are inherent biases there, but I'll try to keep this presentation as free of biases as possible. Objectives. Let's go ahead and skip over objectives and jump right into right into the talk. So today there are, there are more than sixty thousand genetic tests that are available on the market right now, uh, for more than five hundred labs, and these are registered at the voluntary NIH genetic testing registry online. And frankly, that's a voluntary registry, so it's probably really an underestimate of the true number of genetic tests that are available both to clinicians and consumers today. And these tests that are available, they include. FDA authorized direct consumer test that a consumer can just order on their own and receive the genetic test result directly back without a clinician being involved. There are also um, hybrid ordering models where consumers can go online and place an order on a, on a laboratory's website. And there's actually a physician in the background that's actually reviewing that order and technically placing the order on the patient's behalf. And those are called hybrid ordering models. And those are regulated a little bit differently than, than the FDA authorized direct consumer test. And so this will, I'm, I'm saying this for a reason because we'll, we'll come back to why this is important in a few slides. So just know there's a lot of genetic testing out there. There's a lot of labs out there and there's a lot of variability in what these different labs are offering. So across this whole spectrum of testing that, that's available, the, the methods that the labs use, basically how they go about looking at your genes, it can, can vary from lab to lab and from test to test. And this can range from, I'll use the example of, of a DNA chip. So DNA chips are what most direct-to-consumer laboratories are, are utilizing to, to analyze genes. And they're really good at analyzing thousands of known variants across a human genome, which is really great to say if you want to predict what someone's ancestry is. 
they're not very good at detecting novel variants that aren't previously known, which are the type of variants that typically cause rare inherited diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you probably don't want your DNA analyzed on a DNA chip if you're asking questions about what caused the disease. Okay. So recently, um, towards the end of last year, there is a, a limited, what I'll call an, a limited variant screening strategy that was made available for nine specific variants in two genes, MY87 and myosin binding protein C or MYBPC3. These are the two most common causes of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the, these nine variants were made available to consumers as a laboratory developed test available through a hybrid ordering model, which I'll remind you is when someone can say, go online to a website, place their order online, and there's a third-party physician in the background that is reviewing that order and technically placing the order on behalf of the patient. So why is the why does this matter? Like nine variants, two genes. Sounds great, except that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with more than 40 genes. And even in the two genes that I just mentioned, there are easily close to a thousand or more variants that are already known in those two genes. And who knows how many new, no, unknown novel variants that are waiting to be found. So nine variants relative to spectrum of genetic causes of, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is, is really not very much on the surface. So we decided to actually ask the question, how bad is that? How limited is that? Well, those, are these nine variants that are being offered as, as part of this hybrid laboratory developed test, do they capture a lot of patients uh, or, the, or do they miss a lot of patients? And so that's, that's what we asked. So determine how often the screening for just those nine variants and just those two genes would miss other pathogenic or likely pathogenic, so disease-causing variants that might falsely reassure individuals at risk for cardiomyopathy. How do we go about doing this? At Invite, we analyzed de-identified data with IRB approval from two indication-based groups of patients. One group of patients was approximately 6,000 individuals um, of different ethnic backgrounds that were referred to Invite for HCM genetic testing, which could involve testing of up to 60 genes. There's a second cohort we actually we also looked at, which were patients who were referred to Invite, approximately 9,000, that were referred, for, referred to Invite for more comprehensive testing. So not just hypertrophic cardiomyopathy genes, but other cardiomyopathy genes in addition to the HCM associated genes. So that could be up to 116. So in total, we looked at more than 14,000 patients who had been evaluated at Invite for for cardiomyopathy genetic testing. So if we go over to the next slide is really just a visual indication of what I just what I just described. So we took those results from those more than 14,000 patients um, from that comprehensive screening and then just asked, what would we have found if we instead had just looked for those nine specific variants in just those two genes? So a very, we essentially restricted our analysis theoretically. And the HCM cohort, in the HCM group of, of patients, uh, we found that the, the yield of the testing was 22%. So in 22% of the patients, we identified a likely pathogenic or pathogenic variant, whereas in it, had we only screened for the, nine, for the nine variants that were made available in the, in the hybrid laboratory developed test, the yield was only 1.5%. So roughly 96%-ish of patients would have that are truly genetically positive would have received a negative genetic test result from the from the nine variant screen. Basically, if you really the take home the take home here is if you if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and if you were to receive testing through a nine variant screen called a cardiomyopathy panel, 
the result would most likely be negative, even though you have a very high likelihood of actually having a genetic, a genetic variant being identified. And I'll mention something that may be, that may have, for those in the audience uh, who are listening, who, who saw the 22% yield and maybe thinking like, I thought the, I thought the yield of, of, of an HCM genetic test might, might should be higher, um, or I've heard that it's higher. And yeah, it, it is. If you take a, if you take a group of patients um, who have been really well clinically documented by their physicians and they no doubt about it, like clinically, this patient has HCM, the yield of the genetic test is closer to 50%. So 50% of the time and the no doubt about it patients. But as a genetic testing laboratory, we get the no doubt about it. These patients definitely have HCM as well as the, eh, you know, I'm not sure what this is patient. So our yield as a laboratory is going to be lower than what someone might read in like an academic paper of like well-documented HCM patients. And that's why the yield is that When you're looking at that 22.4%, which is like, wow, that's a really low number. Are you also including familial screenings for HCM or are these clinical identifications? These, are, these, were, these were all comer patients who were referred to in Vitae for testing and, and just probands, not family members. So there's a, also a pretty good chance that if it's an all comer and not like a center of excellence or not high level cardiomyopathy programs referring these in, that maybe they were ordered for the inappropriate patient. Potentially. Yeah. I, I know my community is looking at this going, I thought it was going to be much higher number. So just to clarify what you said, if you're a known HCM and you've got a diagnosis clinically, your yield is generally about 50% to find a hit. And we already have one question from somebody saying, I've had it done twice. Why don't they find it? Can you just pause and speak to clinically positive, genetically negative? What does that mean? Yeah, that that is a really that that's a really good question, and I can understand the the frustration of the person who's been tested a couple of times. We don't understand as a field. This is not MVT specific, but as a as a cardiovascular genetics field, we simply do not understand a hundred percent of the genetic causes today that cause HCM. We understand about 60 percent of the causes of of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These remaining patients that. Like, like the person who's asking, who has been clinically diagnosed with HCM, there's no clinical question that this person has familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They still may test negative just because we don't, haven't yet identified all of the genes that can cause HCM today. And we consider those, the, the term in the field is genetically elusive or, or genotype negative is another way. And we're still fighting to find those answers and we will continue on that quest to find more of these genes, but right now this is what we know. So I will let you continue, sorry for the pause. Yeah, and so we saw something very similar in the comprehensive cardiomyopathy cohort as well, essentially. In patients that had been referred for comprehensive cardiomyopathy testing, the yield of the comprehensive, the full test was approximately 19%, but the nine variant screen in that population, the yield was only 0.4%. So only 0.4% of the patients were positive by the nine variant screen. Um, yeah. So together, you know, 96% of individuals that have gen genetically positive cardiomyopathy is like we can, by, based on the testing that is available today, we can identify a positive variant for the benefit of the patient and, and at risk family members would have instead tested negative and been potentially falsely reassured by a negative result through the limited variant screen. And this is really, you know, the point that we really wanted to drive home with the cardiology audience that, 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 that was listening to this at the American College of Cardiology, is it's really paramount for clinicians just to be aware of this, that 
you know, like a rose is not necessarily on a rose, like a, a cardiomyopathy panel, just because something is called a cardiomyopathy panel doesn't mean that it is necessarily a comprehensive analysis of the genes that a medical grade test should offer. So we just wanted to caution cardiologists if they are seeing an HCM patient or any other cardiomyopathy patient and they say, oh doc, I've been, I've been tested before, I'm negative. There's more questions to be asked at that point. What test was it? Was it a comprehensive test? How many genes were analyzed? Who did it? What year? Yeah, what year is another good one. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's a, that's a prompt for more questions, not, not necessarily an answer. I have always preferred the terminology no mutation found as opposed to negative because I think negative makes people think it's definitive and it's at the end of the road and you have nothing. When in fact, it's no mutation found because nothing was identified doesn't mean nothing, something's not there. That is a very important linguistic difference. I, I agree. I know, and I haven't been able to get the entire genetics field to come on to my way of thinking yet. So I'm working on that. Barbara has a question or comment here that I think is very interesting. She says, my gene has not been identified yet, which I think she's referring to possibly a variant of unknown significance. Uh, and Barbara, if that's not what you meant, please clarify. But can you explain to the viewer who may not know a lot about genetics what a variant of uncertain or unknown significance is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so all of us carry genetic variation, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different genetic variants across our genes. And we each have approximately 20,000 20, genes that we're carrying around. And there's just a lot of natural genetic variation that occurs. And even within the, the HCM-associated genes, there's natural genetic variation that occurs in those genes that some of these variants may be present in like 30% of the general population. And then some variants may be very rare and only occur of, with some people of certain ethnicities. When we identify a variant in a gene, any laboratory has to go through a whole process that we call variant interpretation of trying to decide is this variant that is different from what scientists have decided is the reference genome. Like we as scientists have decided that there is a reference genome. This is what we're going to call the baseline normal. And we're going to compare anything that we find in patients against this reference genome. Well, once we identify a variant and it's different from the reference genome, then we have to decide does, is this clinically significant? The first thing the laboratory does is we consult many other genomes that have been sequenced and ask, is this present in, in population databases of, of normal, ostensibly normal, healthy people? And if it's present at a very high prevalence, you know, very common in the general population, we go, no, this is this common variant is not going to be associated with, with causing something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's just too common in the general population. But if it's not common in the general population, or, it's a, or it might be a certain type of variant that's predicted to do something to the gene, like make the gene non-functional and no longer produce a proper protein product or something like that. Then the laboratory might decide like, okay, this might be clinically significant. And, but if there's not enough evidence for the laboratory to say this variant is the cause of disease, which the laboratories that we call these likely pathogenic or pathogenic variants that we think are disease causing, if we can't decide that, and if we can't decide that the variant is, is not clinically significant, we call those variants likely benign or benign. 
In the middle between those two areas are the variants of uncertain significance. And frankly, they're the bane of genetic testing. Like any, any all laboratories, we all hate variants of uncertain significance. We work really hard trying to trying to figure out new and novel ways to get to get rid of them basically. Those are the five different types of results that someone could expect in a genetic test result. Pathogenic, likely pathogenic, those are considered clinically actionable generally. On the other end of the spectrum, benign and likely benign. Most laboratories don't even include these on the patient's primary report. The report might read negative or ideally, like Lisa said, no mutation found. Uh, to, to the variants of uncertain significance, and those typically are included on, on a laboratory's test report. Okay. That was a really long answer, Lisa. Did I, how did I do? It was a really long answer, but it was a really good answer, and it has spurred a bunch of other questions, which I'm trying to listen to you and track them as well, which gets a little challenging sometimes. We've got some really good questions here just on general genetic testing, so we're going to dive into a couple of them. Joy, recently, two of my nieces have no mutation through an Invitae panel test. The mutation was found in their mom through a prior Invitae test. So this is your company. It doesn't have to be your company to ask the question. So you have two no mutations identified, but mom was identified. How much should my nieces trust that they will not develop HCM? So I think we're going to take that from your very specific question and make it a bit more generalized. If the index patient in the family has a known mutation and their offspring do not have that mutation, what are our beliefs in 2020 that there's not something else out there that could cause HCM in that situation? And let's, let's be very clear that the mutation that we're referring to that was identified in the family that we are confident that this is a that this has been classified as a pathogenic variant. We know that it is a, a rare disease causing variant that's associated with HCM. So that's the first thing. So we can't be talking about a variant of uncertain significance in this case. So that's an important qualifier. And the reason I the reason I made that qualification because some it's people will call a variant of uncertain significance a mutation, and it's not a very specific, very specific term. So assuming, again, that this is a pathogenic variant that's been identified in the family, what is the confidence that other family members should be able to be tested for that variant? And if they test negative, what is our confidence that they are not going to develop the disease? Very high that they're not going to develop the disease. And we can break this part in two different ways. So one is the analytical accuracy of the test. Like when a laboratory tests for a a specific variant, the laboratories are generally more than 99% confident that the variant, that the specific variant that they were testing for is not there. So there's really no question about whether or not the, there was a potentially a, a false negative result analytically. And, and current guidelines indicate that when family members get tested for a family's known disease-causing variant, that these individuals don't need to come back for routine clinical screening. But it is very prudent to get clinically screened at least once, in my opinion. Lisa, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you, how are you advising the HCM population? So I would say, and I'm going to break it down in slightly different terms. And Tom, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong. If mom has a completely known pathogenic mutation, which has been clearly defined in the literature and was reported back to her as truly pathogenic and our children get screened, the chances that her children have another gene associated with HCM would be almost equivalent to the general public developing that mutation, which is a number that I don't think has ever been truly calculated yet. So in all likelihood, they will not develop HCM. If it is a variant of uncertain significance 
and your children don't have it, I don't think you can use that information at all to determine anything. And you need to continue screening the children. And you cannot assume that that variant of unknown significance is actually disease causing. But I would encourage you that each time you check in with your HCM specialist, you would ask, has there been any change to the definition of my mutation? I happen to be on an advisory panel right now for an NIH grant that's asking the question, when do you and how do you handle reinterpreted genetic information? So we may have said something was disease causing and maybe new data came out to tell us that it's really not so clear, or maybe something that we thought was benign is actually disease causing. They can go in either direction. How do we as a patient community, physician community, testing community, how do you deal with that? Is our relationship with our genetic testing company transactional or is it long-term? And this is a question that just hasn't been addressed yet because regular laboratories that we're used to dealing with, you gave them blood or some other bodily fluid and they gave you a result and it was transactional, it's done but genetics have a longer life. And the question is, how do they communicate back with us legally? Where's the consents? Where's the ethics? Where's all of that? So we're working on that question right now, which I just went off into a completely different area, I know. But I think what's critical is you have to stay on top of it. Unless you got a 100% definitive, we know that disease causing mutation is in your family. I'm a myosin binding protein C mutation. Everybody in my family, who could be tested, has been tested. We know who has it. We know who doesn't. It tracks with disease. It's, it's a done deal. So someday if I had a grandchild screened and they were negative of that gene, I would feel very confident that it had ended. So it really depends on the value of the mutation and how they graded the report. Agreed? Absolutely. Okay. Other question. Um, Ross, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by this. I've had a test done with you, I'm assuming, in Vitae and provided the FASTQ file to me of my data. Is that my data? Yeah, it, it, is, it is your data. Um, I can speak for, for at least for Vitae here. And if a patient is tested and they do want their, their so-called raw data files, they can request them. And there's a, you know, a form that, that will, I think that will ask the, the patient to sign and will transfer the, those files over to you. I'm not sure what the exact format is. I'm not sure if they'll be FASTQ files or something else, but or maybe it might be a VCF file or a BAM file. There's lots of different raw data files. But yeah, we, we absolutely will provide the raw data back to patients who, who request them if they, want, if they want that information. It can be kind of hard to use. I'm, I'm a geneticist. I've been genetically tested and I don't have my own raw data files. So <laughs> for, for, what that, for, for what that's worth. Yeah, it's a lot of analysis. And even if you go through your raw data, you may come to conclusions that may not be scientifically valid. So you, you may want to, you know, it's fun to play with it and see if you can figure something out, but I wouldn't assume anything until you've had it validated by somebody who is um, skilled in this field. This podcast was made possible by funding from Invitae, providing genetic testing services to the HCM community and other genetic disorders. For more information, visit 4hcm.org. Jillian has a question that I'll field, and then we'll talk about how this would happen. So she wants to know what the signs are that somebody has this genetically, meaning hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Her husband passed away and was not diagnosed until autopsy. They had no prior idea the daughter's being monitored. So Jillian, I will start this by saying 
number one, please contact the HCMA office. We'll talk you through this on a very individual basis. You can set up an appointment with me. We can discuss it in detail on how this works out. But in general, we it's not too late necessarily to screen your deceased husband if the medical examiner's office still has blood available. And in some cases, other forms, other tissue can be used. So if we can go back and get that, we can do a genetic screen. And with that, I'm gonna to pivot to Tom and explain that Invita has done something very incredible for the HCM community this past year. And you're providing free panels of HCM genetic testing to anybody who has a clinical indication for such. And an autopsy and the autopsy report would prove as clinical indication. So it could be done post-mortem and it can be done in the living as well. How would somebody access that form? They can go to our website, but what happens when they get into the Invitae system to order genetic testing? So Lisa, thank you for describing the what we call the Detect um, Cardiomyopathy and Arrhythmia Program. It is a, I will mention that it is a no charge sponsored testing program. Who are the sponsors? The sponsors are, are Invitae as well as the biopharmaceutical industry. I, I feel like I need to address up front, like what, why, the, why does this exist? Right. Um, and it, it exists because there are certain biopharmaceutical companies that are, that are developing gene-specific therapies, and they want to know who the clinicians are who have the right patients for those gene therapies. And Vitae is not passing along any kind of identifiable patient information as part of the Detect Cardiomyopathy and Arrhythmia program. Um, any data that's provided is completely de-identified, the same type of data that's de-identified and used for research purposes. So this is, this is really a, a very novel business model and the laboratory industry. We, we have another program outside of cardiology and epilepsy, which I think there's about eight or 10 different biopharma sponsors that, you know, as a company and with the help of these various biopharma pharmaceutical sponsors, we're now able to make genetic testing available to any child, I think, under the age of 10 now in the United States, which is incredible. And we're trying to do something very similar in cardiology for, for patients with, with heart diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Lisa, you mentioned you have this avail this information available on the HCM website. We have a really nice flyer that's there that explains the three different options for patients. But the first option that we recommend is, is uh, visiting the HCMA's website of HCM Centers of Excellence which obviously Lisa can speak really closely to this, but one, one, of the, one of the parts of being an HCM Center of Excellence is providing uh, genetic uh, certain genetic evaluation services, which include genetic counseling and genetic testing. Another option is talking to your existing cardiologist, you know, assuming that they're not already part of an HCM center of excellence, they can facilitate and order testing for you through this program. A third option that we have for patients is actually a hybrid laboratory developed test ordering model, not a nine variant screen, but uh, an actual comprehensive screen. And, I, and again, that, this is when you go online, you'll start to place your order uh, there will be a third party, which is a company called Genome Medical um, that Invite uses, that will review the order and place the order on your behalf. And then you get the result back and you can share that with your with your physician directly, you know, online actually. You can like enter their email address or you can just you know print it out and give them a copy. There's different ways to, to share information. I will mention that that third option though, there is there, there is some charge associated with it. There, there is no charge for the actual testing from Invite. But Genome Medical, the third-party physician and genetic counseling services that are reviewing the order, um, there is a charge associated with that. And I, I believe it's $99. It's around $100, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to bring up something else that's really important about that second option, that, that doctor on the internet mm -hmm. evaluating it. 
So many of our families are housed with their HCM care in an HCMA recognized center of excellence. But when they're within that care model and they have a family member, maybe someplace else in the country that needs to be screened, it's very difficult for that person's HCM doc to put in an order for somebody that they don't know and has never seen. There's legal issues, there's reimbursement issues, there's a thousand issues with that. So by having an online doctor to say, I'm evaluating this for appropriateness, that online physician, who's an actual human being, is your physician, is your contact point, and legally is your physician ordering this test for a reason. So for if, if you're an HCMA family and you know that you have family members around the country that haven't been screened yet, this is a perfect program for them. Rather than paying a copay for an evaluation in a doctor's office, they would pay the, the fee for the online doctor services, but they're not paying for the genetic test, which I have to tell you, Tom, when probably shortly after you and I first met many years ago now, um, I think the original price for HCM genetic testing was somewhere around $8,000 when it first hit the market. Yep, that's but, in the right ballpark. Yeah, and then it went down pretty quickly to about three grand, and now we're able to offer it for free. In this still country. is still is three grand depending upon where you go. So still three grand, but we have this program now that is offering this amazing resource to patients and putting genetic testing in the hands of anybody who needs it right now for HCM or other cardiomyopathies. So we're really encouraging people to use that. Yeah, um, Lisa, do you mind if I mention one thing about the 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 for the family members? Um, uh, sorry for for those who want to get your family screen, like Lisa just described, like the perfect really use case scenario for like the third party physician to review the order that you know, is the company called Geno Medical, which is terrific. For family members, if you already have your variant identified and you're listening to this and you want to get your family members identified, you know, if you had your testing done at Envite, the, the family variant testing, uh, the Geno Medical charges $99 for the pre and post test genetic counseling when they are counseling for a known variant. So it's a little bit different than getting, if you haven't been tested, Genome Medical's fees are a little bit higher. They, they charge a fee for the pretest and a separate fee for the post-test genetic counseling, which is really important. If it's a family variant test, which is again, is you're, you're screening for a known familial variant, Genome Medical just charges $99 total for, for the pre and post-test genetic counseling services. Okay. We have a number of people can use that one. So Jillian posted back that they did, and the only gene marker that came up was something not typical with HCM, but still flagged it for them. So again, Jillian, get the records together, send over copies to the office. You and I can go over them in detail, and I can point you in the direction of resources that will help you get to the bottom of this and help the proper interpretation of that data uh, be done by somebody who understands HCM, probably at a higher level than your doctor in the community or definitely the medical examiner, they don't have as much interaction with HCM as you might think. So let's help them do their jobs and our condolences for your loss. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Ross is back. Is it targeted testing for specific mutation? Is it a whole genome sequencing to look for future findings? You want to discuss the difference between specific mutations and full genome screens? Yeah, so the testing that 
and Vitae offers and for cardiomyopathy, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and as well as, frankly, the, the what, what most medical grade um, labs offer for cardiomyopathy, they're not doing whole genome sequencing. They are, they are instead looking at a restricted number of genes and they're sequencing these specific genes. There may be hundreds of genes, but there's, and these are called panels, panels of genes. Whereas that, that is what you do when you are generally looking for a variant that may be disease causing. Once a variant has been identified, then typically that is when you start pursuing the testing for a specific variant that is already known to be in the family. Whole genome sequencing, just, just for clarification, it's actually pretty rare outside of, of research still. It is, it is quite expensive, and, the, and the, there's an intermediate between panels and doing whole genomes, which is called whole exome sequencing. So out of your entire genome, again, I mentioned there are about 20,000-ish genes um, that are in the human genome. That actually only makes up about 2% of your entire genome. So we have a lot of, like our genes actually are not really a huge part of our genome if you think about it in that context. So the exome only sequences the protein coding parts of, of, um, of these genes. So there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a cheaper intermediate. But anyway, exome sequencing is still a lot more expensive than uh, typically than, than running panels of genes. And exome sequencing has some limitations compared to doing panels. When you're doing panels, you can look very carefully analytically the genes, and you can catch types of variants that doing exomes are not quite as good at catching compared to doing smaller panels of genes. So there's lots of caveats of like what to do, and like there's pluses and minuses really like between you know the different approaches. But for HCM patients, if you know you have HCM, uh, generally speaking, a panel-based approach is going to be the best best thing for you, and, that, and that's really what most labs offer today. I think you've just inspired me to reach out to some of our genetic counselors uh, within HCM programs around the country and get them to join us online and give us a tutorial for everybody. What is, you know, Sanger sequencing? What is chip technology? What is gene testing? What is genome testing? What is exome testing? You know, things are getting a little bit more complicated. I'm really glad that like protonomics didn't blow up as much as I thought <laughs> years ago because it was blowing my mind and I wasn't understanding it. Um, hopefully in a few years, I'll look back at this and go, huh, I didn't understand protonomics. How silly. Okay. We have a couple more questions and then we're going to wrap up. When should you be tested again? So if somebody was tested for a known mutation and it came back with a VUS or it came back with a nothing, what timeline are we looking at? People want to revisit testing. This is a really good conversation to have with a genetic counselor who can look at, ask questions like, when were you tested last? Have new genes since been discovered that, uh, that that makes pursuing a new test worthwhile is the questionable finding, which is presumably a variant of uncertain significance. It's a good time to go back to the, to the lab on a regular basis and ask like, hey, you know, has this been reinterpreted? Most labs do uh, recontact physicians, you know, when a report has been amended with a new result. But, you know, when, 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 you know, whether or not they also contact patients can vary between labs and also whether or not the the ordering physician contacts the patient. I mean, that's, I'm sure there's got to be variability there. I don't have anything to document there, but that's just how life works. Um, if, if I were an HCM patient, and I'm not, I, I would make a point of either regularly talking to my genetic counselor and ask like, hey, has this been you know reinterpreted? And they will probably in turn turn around and ask the laboratory. Um, now, if they really trust their laboratory and they know that the laboratory does a really good job of contacting them when reports have been amended, and Vitae does a really good job of this. I hate to be biased, I'm sorry. 
NVTA does a really good job of contacting physicians once a report has been amended. And we also contact patients uh, when a report has been been amended as well. Um, and, you know, we have a patient portal at NVTA where, you know, when you're doing your ordering, getting your ordering done, or after you've received, after a physician has ordered a result for you, you can actually go online and register your own patient portal account download your test result from that patient portal. That would also be the same portal that you would get in the amended reports um, if, a, if something changed on your report as well. So I personally think it's a really good idea to be in a laboratory system as a patient. Um, I, I'm a big fan of patient empowerment and not depending upon other people to, to take care of my health. I think you are your own best advocate and joining something like a B-Taste patient portal, I think is like one, one example of being a good advocate for yourself. I could not agree more. And I will tell you that Things fall through the cracks in, in any medical practice, even the best of the best. And to assume that somebody's checking up on some tests you had done four or five, six years ago to see if there's been any change, while I'd like to say in a perfect world that would work, it's, it's probably not very realistic. So we encourage you to ask, has there been a change to my genetic variant? Can you check for me when you go on your appointments? And, you know, you have to go back and look. The first time the HCMA offered an opportunity to participate in a genetic test was, I think, 2005, when Corelogen came on market. And they were the first direct-to-consumer, or oh, not direct-to-consumer, but consumer-available genetic test outside of an academic laboratory, which was Laboratory for Molecular Medicine, which is tied to um, uh, Harvard Brigham Partners Health. So... If your testing was done in that generation, you probably want to come back and do it again because that was 15 years ago. And that's like the stone ages in genetics, right? That was a long time ago. If it was two years ago, you want to ask which lab, which platform, what was screened for. And if it was one of the more common genetic testing panels available today, there hasn't been a lot of changes in the past 24 months, but there might be in the next 24 months. We don't know what we're going to discover until we discover it. And then they don't add it onto a panel until it's been very carefully vetted. So you really need to have that conversation with your healthcare provider. I would say right now, if you haven't been tested in five years, you may want to revisit it if you didn't get an identified genetic mutation. Uh, I'm going to let Charles have the last question here, unless something else really pressing comes up. So he's referring to another company, claims that they do a 30 times whole genome sequencing for under $400. Is it useful in HCM? And I'm going to add the caveat, do you get what you pay for? I'm not familiar with Nebula. Um, I've, I've seen other laboratories who, who have offered whole genome sequencing like this. I guess the question I would ask is how good is their interpretation of the data? Are you getting a clinical report? How expert are they in the genes that they need to, they need to analyze? Unless you have a a generally whole genome sequencing and even exome sequencing is generally reserved today for patients who have very phenotypically difficult to diagnose diseases. So they may have some really complex multisystemic disorder, like let's say a pediatric case that has, you know, dysmorphology and there's like a lot of different things going on and, and the clinician's like, I don't know what this is it could be a thousand different genes that could be causing diseases that look like this. That's when a whole genome or exome sequencing more common today is very useful um, because it can screen thousands of genes at once at relatively, relatively low cost compared to what it would do to take 
panel after panel after panel to sequence that same number of genes. By comparison, HCM is relatively simple because you're only looking at about 100 genes that you need to look at. And only a few genes are really the most common causes of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it just makes more sense to use a test that focuses on the genes that really matter for the disease, in, the, in this case, HCM, and can really carefully scrutinize those genes for variants. And the what is called the depth of sequencing, you mentioned 30x for the whole genome. At Invitae, it's closer to 350x on the panel. And why this depth of sequencing matter, it lets us see types of variants um, that are called deletions more readily than, than we would have been able to, we wouldn't be able to see them if we were just, say, doing like 30. There's a reason why that most laboratories are doing panel-based approaches of restricted genes for HCM than going to a whole genome. So I will add to that, and, and Charles supplemented by saying that this is George Church's. Hmm. So anybody who knows anything about genetics, George Church knows what he's talking about. Not going to argue that. But what is the value of your genomic data? And how does that value of your general genomic data balance against what you're going to do about your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And I think right now where we are, and that's 2020 uh, in the middle of a pandemic, I don't think it's going to add anything right now. Will we be able to look at mass data and say maybe there's some correlation between something after we have lots and lots and lots and lots of genomes to mine? Possibly. But right now in 2020, what do I think genome sequencing at 30x is going to add to the knowledge of your currently known mutation of pathogenic value of VUS of benign? I don't think it's going to add anything right now. Tom? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think we're going to get to the point where we're probably, the technology has evolved and the, I think the, the event horizon endpoint is going to be like, we all have genome sequencing at birth and it's going to be really careful like done and it's going to be great. And the data is going to follow you around your whole life. Probably we're just not there yet. And, and the, the state of the technology today is that I think it makes a lot of sense doing a restricted panel of known disease causing genes, because even if you did find something in another gene, it's not really going to be interpretable. Like, like you found something in, you know, the undiscovered HCM gene today, if you're a patient and you happen to undergo like whole genome sequencing, that variant isn't going to be flagged as an HCM causing gene because it hasn't been associated. You'd have to, it'd be a research project for a research laboratory to kind of sort out like, is this gene really causing the disease? Is it tracking with the family? You're not, you're not a research project. You're a person. Yeah. <laughs> life with a genomic background makes you, you. Um, so that, that's a great question, Charles, and a very thought-provoking one at that. I wanted to give you an opportunity to acknowledge your coworkers who helped on this project that we swayed yeah. from a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lisa. So first and foremost, thank you, Lisa, for your contributions and for your insights and uh, in, in helping with this with this uh, with this study, as well as all my colleagues at Invitae that that helped make this possible, and especially to all of the patients and all the physicians that have trusted in Vitae that for, for out which like the study would absolutely have not have been possible. Yeah, it's rather impressive that you've got, you know, 12,000 uh, that you've screened for HCM and we appreciate the efforts that Invitae has made to better understand these genetic mutations, provide a platform that is stable, a company that is stable and is going to stay in this for the long haul, we hope. We really thank your leadership for the and I'm going to say something that's going to sound an ounce dramatic here. 
to, to create a collaborative arrangement with industry who has, obviously there are, there are certain diseases that manifest like HCM, but actually have a very specific genetic cause that allows them to be treated through different pathways. There's Fabry's disease, there's Gannon's disease, there's amyloidosis that can look like HCM. And those patients who are screened and found to have those disorders can get parsed off to industry who is trying to do research in those areas and their doctors are gonna become educated about what those pathways are and those patients are gonna find their way to help faster. It is our ultimate hope that at some point, HCM has genetically based therapies. And if we keep all working together, identifying these genetic mutations and having industry and you know the, um, the research community partners help us figure this out, the faster we're going to get to answers and better therapeutics that are truly personalized medicine and truly targeted to the patient. So while you think you're just having a genetic test, when you check that little box to say, yes, you can use my information and research, you help to develop these databases and you help to find the cure someday. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. This was great. It made me think of a couple more segments to do on the basics of genetics that will probably help the general audience understand this topic a lot better. So thanks for your time today. Great. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for all the wonderful questions for those who participated today. The HCMA would like to thank Rode Microphones for their support of this podcast. Rode Microphones generously donated the Rodecaster Pro soundboard to help make this podcast possible and to help us sound so good. Thank you, Rode Microphones, for your support.